0: Hello and welcome to a extremely special episode of the Scottish Liberty podcast with me, Tom Laird, and my good friend,
1: Anthony Samaroff.
0: Um, we have an extremely distinguished guest to go with this extremely special episode. And today we have for you Yaron Brook, chairman of the board of the Ayn Rand Institute, author of Free Market Revolution and Equal is Unfair, which I like the sound of, uh, and most importantly, host of the Yaron Brook show and all-round hardy soul for stepping out in this weather to meet us. Shalom, welcome Shalom. to Scotland, Thank Thank and uh, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. Thanks
1: for having me. Great. Um, it's it's a real pleasure. So I guess we'll start at the beginning. Uh, maybe you should tell us a little bit about objectivism and what distinguishes it from other branches of the big church of liberty-orientated philosophies.
2: Well, I mean, it's, it's hard to... I don't know that there's such thing as a big church of liberty-oriented philosophy. There's a, there's a big tent of many people who call themselves pro-liberty, some of whom I think are generally pro-liberty and some of whom I think are not. I think what one of the things that makes objectivism unique is that it is a philosophy. Mm-hmm. I think almost all the other schools within this libertarian big tent yeah. all have philosophies that are non, uh, not necessarily consistent. Right. So so you could be a Kantian libertarian, you can also be a Kantian socialist, you can be a, uh, a utilitarian libertarian, but also a utilitarian socialist. You can be lots of things philosophically grounded, supposedly libertarian, but you can also be the opposite and have that philosophy. Objectivism is the only philosophy, I think, from the ground up, which is... Built around, it's not built around the idea of liberty, but from which liberty arises out of the philosophy right. rather than the other way around. I think generally libertarians have this emotional or, or even cognitive appeal to the economics or, right. or, to, or to the idea of liberty, and then they find a philosophy that somehow meshes with it, but it doesn't sure. really, but, mm. but so be it. Whereas objectivism as a philosophy, the only outcome of its epistemology, metaphysics, epistemology and ethics is a politics of right. liberty, is a politics of capitalism. So it, it's unique in that sense and I think libertarians do themselves a big disservice in not studying it thoroughly and not ultimately uh, adopting it mm. as, as, the, as the philosophy of liberty, I think ultimately the only philosophy of liberty.
0: What, Where, was, your, what was your first introduction to it what, and can you remember that? Of course, <laughs> that of of bank, course it was a li- life-changing <laughs> event.
2: I was, um, I was 16, I was a socialist Committed socialist. I, I was a, a collectivist. I was a tribalist. I was a Jewish nationalist. I was pretty much everything Ayn Rand was against at the time. I was an altruist. Mm. You mentioned altruism earlier. I was I was explicitly an altruist. I mean, yeah. I thought in those terms, uh, and everybody was. I, I grew up in Israel, and in Israel, um, you know, every election up until the the, the year of yeah. sixteen had been won by the Labor Party. It was a thoroughly socialist country. Um, and it was, it was a relatively, as a consequence, poor country. And everybody was a socialist, everybody around me. And, and on the few visits I went to, I, on the one visit I'd been to America, I didn't really like it. It seemed superficial, materialistic, and, and I didn't like it. And then I was arguing with a friend about something, and he spouts these pro-capitalist ideas. And I said, basically, where are you getting this nonsense from? And he handed me a copy of Atlas Shrugged. Okay. And I spent the next few months reading Atlas Shrugged and, and fighting it and arguing with it and debating it and yelling at Ayn Rand and throwing the book on the, on the wall. And, because it was changing my life. It was, it was shaking every foundation I had. Okay. And uh, by, by the time I finished that book, I guess by the end of the summer of, uh, of 1977, uh, I was hooked and mm-hmm. I was convinced she was right. I'd been wrong my entire life. Everybody around me was wrong. Yeah. And uh, since then, I've, I've basically spent my life studying her ideas. And then I never you the question about what is objectivism, so we can get back okay. to that. But I basically spent the, the the you know forty years since studying the ideas uh, and 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 uh, you know reading more of her books and trying to figure out exactly yeah. what it all meant and how it connected to life.
0: When you say you know when people object to altruism, you know the first. The reaction of most people is, what could you possibly have against altruism? Surely that's a good thing. Yeah. How, do you, how do you define altruism? How did Anne Rand define altruism? Well, she defined
2: altruism the way philosophers have defined yeah. altruism. That is, in, in common parlance, people pretend that altruism means something else. Yeah. They all know it doesn't okay. because deep down we all know we're kidding ourselves when we think altruism is just opening doors and being nice to people and so on. Altruism means living for the sake of other people. Altruism is the ideology that says other people are more important to you than you are to you. That your moral focus, your ethical focus needs to be the well-being of other people. Um, It means that if you, if I help somebody in the street and I feel, and I do it out of a sense that, oh, this will make me feel good, it's not moral. Hmm. It has to be an act of selflessness Hmm. to be moral. So, altruism is built on a foundation that the other is always more important. Altruism means other-ism, the ism of others, right? So your whole moral focus is on the other person. It's not about being nice and polite and friendly and helping people when you want to help them or when when there's a value to be gained by helping them. It's about sacrificing yourself. It's about putting yourself on the cross for other people's sins. Okay. Mm. That is the essence of altruism, right? And, and and I think Christianity has been its its strongest advocate from the beginning because it's the idea of dying the most horrible death possible. Mm. Not for sins you committed. Yeah. That would be kind of okay. No, for sins other people committed. You you're pure. Yeah. You're completely innocent. Now that is not an act of heroism. That's an act of moral cowardice because the purpose of morality is to help you live. Mm. It's to guide your life not to help you die for the sake of yeah. what? But At least
0: in that instance it was voluntarily really, as opposed to enforced upon you by some sort of uh, collective idea of what you should or how you should behave.
2: It doesn't matter, see this is. Is my, this is my argument with libertarians, if we're talking about morality then politics is a different issue. Politics is about what we force people to do, don't force people to do. But morality is about what we should do I with think. our lives. Okay. Yeah, to me that's much more important than politics. Because whatever we believe about politics, the fact is, and I know, I'm, I know I'll just shock you, we're not going to have that much impact on the world out there, not in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. So what's really important is how you live your life with yourself on a day-to-day basis. Yes. That's what morality is about. Morality is about living. And it, so if you have a, a false morality, a bad morality, it screws up your ability to live this one life that you have. And that, to me, is far more evil than anything government can do. So, to me, a voluntarily embraced morality that, that, that denounces your ability or rejects your ability and, or, or prevents you from achieving your own happiness and your own potential as a human being mm. is far more evil than anything a government can do because I'm doing it to myself and I'm okay. choosing to do it to myself, which yeah. is the essence of evil. So evil is not associated with force. You can voluntarily choose to do evil to yourself. You can voluntarily choose to do evil to others without ever using any force. Again, one of the differences between libertarians and, and objectivism is we don't start with this bizarre um, you know, axiom of the non-aggression principle, which libertarians you know, just invent out of nowhere. To me, there's a reason why aggression is bad, but, right. but that's because each individual morally should be pursuing their own happiness and force intervenes with their ability to do that. Right. Right? It intervenes with the ability to use your mind in pursuit of the values necessary for you to be successful, for you to be the best human being you can be. But that's the focus. The focus is on how to live your life. Politics is important, Mm -hmm. but it's one level above in a sense of the hierarchy. It's, It's one development beyond morality. So, I condemn altruism. To me, the damage, for example, the moral damage the Christian church has done far exceeds anything the state has done.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and it's uh, what I love about Ayn Rand's philosophy, she calls a philosophy for living on planet Earth, and I've gained so many insights. I remember one of her insights was this idea that if you do something bad, but only I know, that shows such disrespect to your your self esteem. It's the worst thing yes. that you know that you've done something bad because um, you should value yourself enough to care that you compromise your own integrity. So we talked about the fact that um, Ayn Rand didn't like people philosophizing midstream. Just uh, to, to begin yes. with the to begin with the initial, uh, you know what are we how what kind of universe do we live in, beginning with metaphysics, yeah, yeah. out of that, um, uh, I don't know, what, what order do you put the branches of so, the I would put it, so metaphysics,
2: she believes that reality is what it is. Okay. E- existence exists, as she says, or, or in, put it in Aristotle's terms, A is A, which is the law of identity, which is another way of looking at existence. Exists. Things are, and they are what they are. They're not what you wish they are, and yeah. not what some other consciousness, external to us, creates or wishes they are. They are what they are. Reality is what it is. And we have the tool, this is epistemology, to know that reality, to know what's fact and what's, 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 what is real and what is not. And that is our reason. So we have, we have the capacity to reason, which is the capacity to know reality as it is, right? Not as we invented. So again, one school of thought says, no, reality is what you make it up to be or your senses never actually observe real reality because it's filtered through your minds and mm-hmm. you're making, in a sense, you, you've created that, your senses are creating a separation yeah. between your reality, which is just bizarre because the whole point of evolution is to have senses is to give you info yeah, I mean, about, the, about world the world out there. Yeah. And it's not, so, so. and, and reality is not what you, your wishes mm-hmm. are, it's not what your emotions mm-hmm. dictate, there's only one tool of cognition, of knowledge for human beings, and that is reason. And then, what? who reasons, right? So yes. just like there's no collective stomach, mm-hmm. just like you can't eat for me, mm-hmm. you can't think for me. Only mm-hmm. I can reason. I The unit for human beings is the individual because only the individual has a reasoning mind and it's only through his reasoning mind okay. that an individual can survive.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, we don't know how to hunt. We don't know how to farm instinctually. Nobody has mm-hmm. those instincts. You have to figure it out. That's why I took... 100,000 years for human beings to figure out how to farm. Mm-hmm. And hunting was not easy. We don't have claws, we don't have mm-hmm. fangs. We, we need to use our mind to do everything. So the unit is the individual. And then the question is, what should the individual do? What, what is right and what is wrong for the individual? Well, yeah. first, an individual has to make a fundamental choice between two alternatives, life or death, mm-hmm. to be or not to be, right? Once you make the choice to be, then the question is how? And the question is, if I'm going to live, what do I need to do in order to live? And that's morality. Morality is, what should I do in order to live? And, And for her, the number one thing is think. Use your mind. Live for yourself. Live, which means live for yourself, right? Using your mind, guiding your actions in pursuit of your happiness. That's morality. Okay. And, and altruism, which is, yeah. which is another alternative answer to what should you live for, it says don't think about yourself, think about other people, that's what you should focus on. And then there's a third alternative which is usually presented, right? If you don't think about other people, then you should exploit other people, you should lie, uh-huh. cheat, steal, you should, you, you should use other people for your own so-called benefit. But she says you're not really benefiting when you're exploiting other people, because what you're doing is undermining your self-esteem. You're undermining your own values. You're undermining your own confidence and your own ability to survive in the world. So, for example, if you're a thief, you're basically acknowledging to yourself that you cannot produce in this world. You cannot go out into nature and create the stuff you need to live on.
0: Yeah.
2: You have to steal it from somebody else. That undermines and undercuts every value that you care about. and therefore. Thieves, lying, cheating, stealing, so on, are yeah. miserable human beings, they're not yeah. happy. So, so, so that's kind of the, the ethics. Right?
1: I've got a question. Sure. What if what brings you the most happiness is doing things for other people, bringing happiness
2: to others? So it, it really depends. If you, could, if you could show that that is, rationally, that that is truly the case, that it's not motivated by some sense of guilt as a consequence of the fact that we're all brought up with altruistic parents and in an altruistic society. But it truly is, you get satisfaction from, from being, you know, and, and it could be, for example, that, um, that you choose to be a teacher because you love to convey knowledge to the right. people and part of what you're getting is that reflection back of, of the knowledge. Or you could be, there's nothing in objectivism that says you can't be a social worker, mm. right, who helps poor people get back on their feet, but not a social worker like Mother Teresa who keeps people poor, just prevents them from dying. But imagine if you took social work seriously, and you literally took poor people and helped them get on their feet and become productive human beings and become moral human beings and be successful with their life, then absolutely. I mean, it, 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 there's no contradiction between being a doctor and being an objectivist, of course, yeah. even though doctors help people. I mean, every profession, every way in which we create value involves other people, right? What does business do? We make a lot of money? No. We make a lot of money by doing what? Providing, Providing you know, services and goods that other people want that imp- improve the lives of other people. Now that might not be our initial motivation, but that's the only way to be successful. So hmm, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are yeah, motivated by
1: creating things yeah, that will serve others.
2: Absolutely, but they don't. Th- I don't think anybody really thinks about that. I mean they don't think in terms of serving others. Not really, not at the end of the day. What do they think of? They think of the challenge of what they're trying to create. They think of the fun of it. Steve Jobs now not wake up every morning and say, how can I make the life of your Ron better? He didn't give one iota about me. He woke up every morning thinking, how can I I make beautiful, efficient, productive, amazing stuff that people will enjoy? But his focus was on the stuff that he was making and every successful entrepreneur at the end of the day His focus is on the productive process, on the beauty, the fun, the enjoyment, the excitement, the challenge of building and making stuff. And yes, it helps other people, and that's satisfying, but that's not what drives them. But anyway, there's no no contradiction between the idea of helping other people and attaining your own happiness. And certainly in certain professions, the essence of the profession is to help other people. there's, There's nothing wrong with that if you do it rationally. For Rand, everything needs to be measured by you know by whether it's rational or not mm. okay. because so much so if people tell me well of course I help the poor because it makes me feel better but I always ask them why does it make you feel better mm. yeah. feelings are not primaries. feelings mm. are not tools of cognition does it make you feel better because you because you've grown up with Christian guilt and now it appeases that guilt guilt you should never have so go and see a therapist mm-hmm. get rid of the guilt and then see if you feel better okay. if you feel good when you help the poor
0: so what's is evil then merely what is irrational or what is destructive behavior, destructive thinking? Is that, is yes, that the, essence the essence
2: of... Yes, the essence of evil, Ayn Rand said, the essence of evil is evasion. It's, it's, it's ignoring truth and facts and, 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 your, and your rational faculties, yes. The irrational is not the mistaken, mistaken, everybody can make mistakes, that yeah. you don't place moral judgment on a mistake, but the irrational which is evasive, which rejects facts, or ignores facts, or chooses not to focus on, on, on facts and reality. Yeah. That is the essence of evil and every other evil every other evil is a consequence of that act of evasion. So is would the Slightly flippant, but would the only difference between
0: objectivism, let's say, and Satanism be that, that it's based on reason and not mysticism? But I mean, now I know a lot of guys who would say, I'm a Satanist, but I don't believe in an actual Satan any more know, than I, I believe in an actual God. Satanism
2: strikes me as, as being nihilistic, right? What's okay. the point okay. of being a Satanist? other than to smash the status quo. It's not a positive ideology or positive philosophy as far as I know, right? Yeah. And, and and why would you use the word Satan if not to just slap people in, okay. in the face? So it's not a philosophy, it's not an ideology that actually promotes a certain behavior. It just says we reject Christianity, which right. is fine, yeah. but it's not good enough. You have to reject it for positive. Yeah. I'd say the difference between Rand and, and somebody like Nietzsche, a real philosopher, is that Nietzsche says, you know, at the end of the day, what's good is, is what is will, what is, in a sense, mm-hmm. what the emotion dictates. And where way rejects Nietzsche is by saying, no, what is good is what is rational. Mm-hmm. What is good is what, what is the product of the cognitive mind.
1: I think what I noticed is the difference between the Satanist philosophy is it just took the first bit, um, uh, you, do, do live your life for yourself, but it missed the important bit, which was neither sacrificing yourself to others nor others to yourself, yeah. and Satanism drops the nor others to yourself
2: part. That's probably true, and so does Nietzsche in a sense. Yeah. And, and, but also, live your life for yourself. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Right? There's huge amount of content in what it means to live your life for yourself. What kind of a being are we? What kind of, What is our nature? Yeah. And unless you delve into that question, then you're stuck being an emotionalist, either a hedonist or a nihilist, mm-hmm you know, exploiting other people, or just living for the moment, and in any way, you're not living for yourself, because indeed, hedonism is destructive, so is nihilism, so is any... There's a, you know, we're a certain biological being, right? With food, we kind of have an understanding that certain foods are bad for us and certain foods are good for us. Now, we still don't have the science to tell us exactly which is which, right? We're still struggling with Mm it, it's complicated. But we know that some things are poison and some things are good. What I would argue is that's true of, of, of every aspect of human nature, mm. right? So as a cognitive spiritual being, if you will, as, as, a, as a being with a consciousness, some actions, some ways of using our mind are good and some are bad and evil, uh, just like poison. Mm. So, but you have to, in order to figure out what is good for you, not just go by your emotion. You have to actually examine human nature, think about human nature, figure out and come up with an ethics, come out with values and virtues to guide behavior that leads to ultimately to human happiness, and that's what Ayn Rand has done.
1: Sure. So talking about a philosophy that's contrary to, Kant, uh, to Rand's, you mentioned Kant before. Kant consi- uh, Rand considered Kant's philosophy evil, yes. but not a lot of people understand why, and that might be something that interests the and Rand enthusiasts listening.
2: Sure. I mean, I think that the two primary ways she thinks his philosophy is wrong, and then I'll get to why she thought it was evil, and why he, she thought he was evil, not just the ideas. Um, one is that Kant rejects the idea of the pursuit of happiness. He rejects the idea that the purpose of morality is the pursuit of happiness. On the contrary, he is very suspicious of happiness, because happiness is probably a sign of self-interest, and he rejects self-interest as, a, as, as immorality completely. Your, your purpose, again, morally, Is to be selfless or to be guided by certain categorical imperatives that somehow are in your mind, and in that sense, he's a bit of a mystic. They're somehow encoded in your mind, and you know what they are. I often wonder what you know rapists and murderers, why they didn't get the categorical imperatives, but they, you know, but you you you're supposed to find them and you're supposed to execute out there. So, but but they're all focused again on other people. They're all focused on serving others, yeah. not. And again, if you think of yourself in that context, then it doesn't count as morality, so it has to be selfless. So he rejects the great one of the great achievements of the enlightenment, which is the pursuit of, of happiness. But more fundamentally what he rejects is the idea that reason, reason actually gives us information about reality as it is. Yeah. And he says the fact that we have senses and the fact that we have a mind actually creates uh, creates a barrier between a, between what we have as what we think reality is and what real reality is. Mm-hmm. And real reality is unknowable mm-hmm. because you have to use senses to discover it. And since the senses distort it, then it's actually unknowable to the human mind. Now that sets us back, you know, 100, yeah, 150 years mm-hmm. philosophically. Because again, the achievement of the Enlightenment, the achievement of the scientific revolution, is to say no, our senses give us valid information about the world. No, our reason makes it possible for us to understand the world, yeah. to understand the physical world. This is how we can build these inventions. This is how we can do the equations that actually work in explaining the movement of objects. Uh, you know, this is how we can do biology and chemistry and all these things that are just coming out in the in the 18th to 19th century. And Kant says, "Well, not really. That, that, that's all we've convinced ourselves, in a sense, that that's what's real reality out there. But but it's not. It's just inside our head. And that ultimately leads to." you know, uh, uh, disastrous philosophical consequences from Hegel to Schopenhauer to, to, to Marx to, uh, to Nietzsche and ultimately to, to postmodernism today, every aspect of that is ultimately, can be, can be shown, has its core in Kant's philosophy. And the reason she thought he was evil is she believed he knew what he was doing, hmm. that she believed. And in the Critique of Pure Reason in the introduction he says something like, I'm writing this book in order to save faith from reason. Right, okay. That, and so she believed that he knew what he was doing, that he was purposefully undermining and undercutting the great achievements of the Enlightenment. He was undercutting reason, and he was undercutting individual happiness. And to do that, and to be conscious of that, to basically drive humanity to, to, towards a philosophy that ultimately belongs in the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages, a philosophy that ultimately has to rely on faith in one way or the other. And uh, 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 on altruism, on, on sacrifice to others, which ultimately leads to collectivism, you know, she thought that was the, uh, the ultimate evil. And if you, if you, there's a book by Leonard Peikoff that I highly recommend uh, called The Ominous Parallels, where he actually draws out the consequence of Kantian philosophy through the ages and shows its link both to communism and fascism and how these are basically the unavoidable consequences of Kantian philosophy. And, and if that's the case, if that's true, then I can't think of ideologies that have killed more people than uh, communism and fascism.
0: And I'm interested to, to explore, I guess, from one soldier to another, when you were in the military, I'm guessing you weren't an a, a, a objectivist. How I would, was. You were. Was. So how did that play out? I mean, in, a, in a, an environment which you're basically, it's trained into you, you know that you are part of, a, of one machine. You're a cog in that machine yeah. and every cog has to do its part. Yeah. How did that play out? Did it give you, in some ways, did it give you an advantage in that environment? Or, or was it hard to reconcile?
2: So absolutely, I think it gave me an advantage. I never took it seriously. Right. Right, so I never took that, that nonsense seriously. I spoke back to my commanding officers. I told them what I thought. I told them when I thought they were doing nonsense. Um, I, I think that sometimes it was appreciated, sometimes it got me in trouble. Sure. Uh, the Israeli army might be a little bit more different, in the sense that it, it at least to some extent, respects that. But I never, I never took this idea that I belonged to some machine. So see, Remember, I was also drafted, so I didn't volunteer to go into the right. Okay. So I was drafted, and so I had no choice. But I decided when I was drafted that I would do a good job, that I would try to do my best, um, but that I would not, not follow it as blindly, that I would not let them just collectivize me in that sense. And I stood out as a consequence. I think ultimately ultimately, you know, they wanted me to be an officer and I, I turned them down. I didn't mm. want to be an officer. They wanted me to stay in the military and I didn't want to because I stood out as somebody who who who, you know, pushed the envelope a little bit and challenged things and, and right. but also did stuff, moved things along and, and actually and actually got stuff done. So I I, I think I think to the extent that a military allows you to do that, to be an individual, to the, that extent it's going to be a better military than one that forces you to conform okay. and forces you to be part of a team and you're not supposed to think for yourself and you're just supposed to follow orders, that's a dumb, that's a dumb army and not an army that is going to lead to success.
1: Okay, you have something. <laughs> yeah, sure. So maybe we can speak, uh, change subject about um, staying in the realms of philosophy. Can you tell us a little bit about the objectivist position on free will?
2: Sure. I mean, the objectivist position is that free will is, is a is a foundational idea. It's, it's, an, okay. it's an axiomatic concept. You 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 kind of you directly observe it. There's no proof of it. You can't prove existence. You can't prove free will. Free will is there. It is it, it is it is also, you know, one of the features of an axiom is that in order to try to disprove it, you have to use its existence. Same with free will. Yeah. You know, it, is, it is the foundation of what reason is and what thinking is and what, 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 what reasoning means. It means engaging a certain faculty. We have this faculty of reason. Every one of us knows we can turn it off. Mm-hmm. When you wake up in the morning, you're kind of fuzzy. You, you know, it's tempting not to think, not to focus. And, and that's, a, that's a certain state that some people stay in. They never turn it on. But that turning on is an act of will. That's the foundational idea, or that's the, the, the essence of what free will means. It means turning on the, 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 the observational faculty, the integration, integrating faculty, the faculty that actually thinks, that does cognition, that integrates, that, that acts. Um, and, and that is something we all can observe in ourselves. We can, all, we can always observe turning it off sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to think that. And, and literally shutting it down, or engaging that. with, yeah. It, yeah. or engaging it, right? And and that's that's the essence. Free will is not about did I lift my finger now and did they, you know did did I will the finger? Yeah, I mean in the sense I'm willing the finger to rise, but that's not the essential feature of free will. The essential feature of free will is that turning on and off the 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 the, the, the your what's uniquely a human consciousness. That is the. the Animals can't do that. Animals are not focused because their survival depends on it, and they don't have the ability to turn it on and off. Human beings, we're the only real animal that can commit suicide on a, you know, we can turn it off. We can, we can decide we're not interested. We decide we don't mm-hmm. want to think. We can take our tools of survival. Our one tool of survival is our reason, and we can shut it down. A cheetah doesn't shut down speed. It doesn't say, oh, today I'm going to run slowly mm-hmm. to yeah. catch the prey. It, it, it can't do that. It's yeah. an automatic... Play. We're not an automatic. There's something that makes us uniquely human, which is that ability to switch it on or off. So what is it
0: about the Marxists? They don't seem to grasp that, or do they just? Are they, is it some sort of cognitive distance
2: where they go, "There's no such thing as free will. You're, you are basically your environment. Well, to a it's not. Degree. It's not just a Marxist. It's everybody today, yeah. right? It's it's the it's. I mean, there's almost nobody in psychology or in philosophy who believes in free will anymore. Not, not in a real free will, not in, you know, so, so they come up with, you know, we, we all have an illusion of free will, or, or pretend to have free will, but psychology, the study of free will, in a sense, and how it applies to, to, to human consciousness and, and, and human cognition, and then emotions and behavior and all of that. If you reject free will, you've rejected the whole field. There is no yeah. field of psychology if you reject free will, in my view. What are you trying to change if people can't change, hmm. will themselves to change, then what are you changing? So, um, you know, anybody from Sam Harris who who, who I'm sure everybody knows is is against free will to to many modern day philosophers, to people who present themselves as scientists because all they can think of is atoms banging against each other, you know, kind of Hume's billiard balls, that's all they can think of, causality is just billiard balls bouncing around. All of, I mean, there's a massive number of people who reject, uh, who reject free will. And, of course, these arguments about free will go back to the Greeks. Mm-hmm. They go back to the beginnings of philosophy. And, you know, Marx is just one among many, uh, you know, yeah. and he took much of this from Hegel. Yeah. You know, history is, is, in a sense, determined. It's this clash yeah. of forces. and um, it, 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 it's, it's, it's mostly nonsense. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's interesting that, you know, people write long treaties about how you, <laughs> how, you know, you should behave in this way Not even though they don't believe yeah. that yeah. you're going to choose to behave that way. I guess they believe that their words will automatically move you in that direction. But then, that's a very cynical view And why did they write him, because why did they care if you don't have free will? I just don't get it. Yeah, why would I yeah. care? Why, why would anything matter? Why would I be doing an interview right now? Who's mind am I trying to, to change? The,
1: instead of talking to the curtains, you yeah. know, because they don't... I mean, and you remi- sorry, yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah. You reminded me of an anecdote mentioning Sam Harris. I was not long ago away with my brother for my dad's 80th birthday, and I was listening to a podcast... From Sam Harris and I kind of almost threw down the headphones and I turned to my brother and said it's so annoying because Sam Harris is an advocate of meditation right and one of the things he says is if you pay attention significantly then you'll be able to observe that everything just arises spontaneously in your head and you don't have any free will? And it was like, "Who are you asking to? Obs- of course. Who are you asking to to yield yeah. up and observe
2: If you observe, if you observe carefully, then you discover there's no you, We're all just one. Right. Or who's? How can you observe you not being you? It. The whole thing is yeah. gooog-goo right? Mm. It's 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 it's. And he's a guy who advocates for reason and logic, mm. and yet these arguments are illogical. Yeah. In a simple way. This yeah. is not even complicated. you I
1: actually it. used the, the Randian term to describe it, which is the stolen concept. Yes. Because how can you yes. say to, to someone, relax and just observe your mind and you'll see things arise. Who are you telling? Who are you telling? Yes. You, it requires free will for someone to be able to take upon themselves yes. that
2: action. Exactly. And, and, and we can all observe free will again by introspecting. And just like... The only proof that, that is that there's a chair there, and you know, I would have to describe what a chair is, but there's a chair there is pointing at the chair. That's all the proof I need. Look, it's mm-hmm. a chair. It has these characteristics, and everybody can see the chair. Mm-hmm. The only proof regarding free will that is necessary is point at your mm-hmm. own consciousness. Now I can't point at yours, I can only point at mine. Yeah. but each one of us can point at our own. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 observational evidence is all you mm-hmm. need to be able to say yeah I I do it I, I I can control my own behavior I can control my own mind I can turn my mind on and off
0: yeah which is why we punish criminals because say you've got you you have a you have a choice you, there's you, you, no you, you, meaning
2: to morality yeah, there's no yeah. meaning to anything else I mean you could argue that there's a meaning to law in the sense that we punish them in order to save us sure it's so a kind of utilitarian argument but there's no meaning to morality if you don't have free will so I want to ask you about
1: um, part of the objectivist philosophy that I'm a little bit confused about, because as I see, as I believe it, Rand believed that value is objective. Now, my background's more in economics, and obviously, like most liberty-oriented people, I'm kind of a Misesian or Austrian, and they say that value is subjective. In fact, that's the only way that we can arrive at prices because we evaluate products and services subjectively, um, which allows us to have a marketplace. Um, and you, obviously, the, there was a revolution in economics when three people came to that insight sure. at the same time. Sure. So can you explain to us how value could be objective in a marketplace, even?
2: Sure. So I, I think at the core, there's no real contradiction between the Messian view of economic value mm-hmm. and Rand's view of value. I think just one is in the realm of economics and it uses the term subjective even though it doesn't mean it. So I think it's a misuse by Austrian economists of okay. the term subjective. Um, now to explain the full context for that is 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 a lot, but there is an essay that you can find out there by by an, an economist by the name of Rob Tarr, T-A-R-R, that actually compares, and that it's a long essay, complex essay, that compares the meaning okay. view of economic Subjective value and, and Rand's view of objective value. And, and he comes to conclusion, I agree with him, that fundamentally the, they are very similar, if not the same. That is, there's a lot of overlap. And here's the, here's the part of the problem. Part of the problem is when we say objective, so uh, what people, people hear, and I think what Misesians hear, is intrinsic. Mm-hmm. Right? So historically, there have been two ideas of value subjective and intrinsic. Subjective means whatever I feel like, Yeah, it comes from me, right? But it's, it's feeling based, it's whatever, whatever I feel like, right? And the other one is intrinsic, it's in the object. It doesn't matter what I think, what I feel, yeah, yeah. it's in the object, yeah.
1: right? Labor theory it's intrinsic to the.
2: yes, yeah. intrinsic theory of value. So you've got a subjective theory, you've got an intrinsic theory. Ayn Rand rejects both of those. And she says, no, what is an objective? Objective is the identification by human consciousness of what is in this thing that adds to my life, right? So in a sense, it's the intersection between my mind, my ideas, my thoughts, my values, and this, right? And, and this automobile, or this uh, whatever it happens to be, this economic thing. I'm, I'm willing to pay this amount for bread. Why? Because bread contributes to my life in x, y, z, because all this facts that I have about how much I work, and how much it is in, and yeah. nutritional value for bread, or actually, I'm on low carbs, I don't eat bread, so you couldn't pay me to eat the bread. You know, so, but all of those facts go into how much I value that bread. Right. right. But it's me valuing it. It's mm-hmm. not a value out there. Okay. And there's a sense in which that's what the Austrians mean. The Austrians are not, particularly Menger, and Menger's quite explicit about this, is much more Aristotelian yeah. in that sense, and closer to Rand. But I think even Mises. It's not that whatever people feel like, right? It's the things that actually give, in a sense, people utility, individuals' utility. Now, what does that mean? Enhance their lives. How are they going to determine whether to enhance their life? Well, using their mind, using their, 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 yeah. their, their hierarchy of values, and using, using their rational faculty. So they're judging the thing out there based on its characteristics, based on how it contributes to their life, to their to their other values, how it integrates into what they want and what. Well, that's, that's what I Rand means by an objective value. And in the end, prices in the marketplace, how are they determined? They determine each one of us value this thing differently, not mm-hmm. because it's subjective. Subjective means whatever I feel like. No, because objectively, in reality, it has a different value to you and a different value to you and a different value to me, because it, it interacts with our lives in different ways. right? I might value, you know, I might love a BMW for a variety of reasons. You might prefer a Volvo because you have kids and you like the safety of a Volvo and I'm, uh, I'm going through a midlife crisis and I want a fast car to, to go on windy roads, right? And, and objectively, you know, I've thought about this. I love driving fast, whatever. I want a BMW. You want a safe car. You want a Volvo. Both of those are objective evaluations, even though they're different. It's objective for you, but all objective. Objective is always for somebody. So objective isn't out there independent of human consciousness. Objective means the identification of a human consciousness of the fact of reality and its evaluation. Hmm. And that and it's is really, pretty deep stuff. <laughs> it is deep stuff, but it's really, really crucial because the fact is that, that the subjective intrinsic idea of values is very, very destructive. It's mm-hmm. because if values are intrinsic, and the Philosopher King knows what the, val- what the intrinsic values are, then he sets the price, and he's the central planner, and he tells you what you should be pursuing, and we know that how dangerous that is, and that's much of classical economics did that. Right. Now, but, but subjective is also dangerous, because subjective means whatever. I feel like, and sometimes I feel like doing really stupid things, and sometimes my emotions lead me in really bad ways, and sometimes really bad stuff can happen. So,
1: so can, I, can I make an example, and you can tell me if it's right sure. or wrong, okay? Sure. There's a cinnamon bun, and there's an apple, and say I'm diabetic, right? Subjectively, I might just feel like eating the cinnamon bun, but the fact that the apple is more valuable to me than the cinnamon bun means that the apple's value is objectively
2: higher. higher. Absolutely.
1: Got Absolutely. It. I hope that helps people listening. Because I thought <laughs> No, that was, that's, a, that's a really good example. And food
2: hamburger. usually works like this because people do create hierarchies with food. Yeah. yeah. And what Ayn Rand is encouraging us to do is do that same exercise. With everything. With everything. So create a hierarchy of values. Decide what are my most important values and what are the least important values. And go after and dedicate yourself to the most important mm-hmm. ones. And the least ones you'll get to and, and, and so on. But but create a life where you know what you want mm. and really go for the stuff that you mm. want and are willing to pay, to pay in money or in time or in work mm. or in effort or whatever more for the things that are more important and less for the things that are less important. But know what's important. Yes. So the cinnamon bun be, might be, or, or, or the cocaine, might be very appealing mm. right now. to Give me a high, I know, wow, it'd be amazing. But long term, it's bad for me. Mm. So objectively, it's bad for me. Great. Even though subjectively, in the moment, it can be. Now, I don't think Mises would disagree with that. Right. So, I don't think Mises would say, no, go with the cinnamon bun. Okay. He would, I think he would say, objectively, the, the apple... Now, he would say, some people don't go through this calculation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Fortunately, unfortunately, some people are not diabetic, or some people are not thinking about it. So, in the marketplace, the cinnamon bun might be more valued than the apple. In terms of price. In terms of price, because... There's more demand for the cinnamon bun because mm-hmm. people have not gone through that exercise. Mm-hmm. But I would, I, I'd still be willing to be in a position, not of a central planner, but of a moral philosopher mm-hmm. and say, stop for a minute and think about it. Do you really want to spend all that money on a cinnamon bun when you could have an apple, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's not an excuse. The fact that I'm saying that apple is more valuable for your health in that context mm-hmm. does not give me an excuse to dictate to you what yeah. you should eat. Yeah. But it well, yeah. does give us a perspective on things. So, she, and she says, look, in a marketplace, things get determined based on the product, based on the values of, often based on the values of, of a majority, a majority of consumers. And those values might be, not be the same as the values of the most knowledgeable people in the world. So she gives the example of a, um, what, is she, what is she, the example I think she gives is a shop girl who values a little thing of lipstick. And she couldn't care less about airplanes. I mean, she's, She's going on a date, and that's what's important to her, and she's willing to put, right? But objectively, if you, if you took the big perspective, you said, well, airplanes are more important than lipstick. But to this woman, yeah. the lipstick's more important than airplane, objectively. Mm. Right? So, again, it's deep, and it's complicated, because you have to have different perspectives on it. But the perspective of the airplane is more important than the lipstick doesn't give you the right then. Mm. To deny the gold, the lipstick, because for her,
1: or the six hundred pound Gucci bag that she should, you Absolutely. know, whatever. It Absolutely. Is. So, what do you think were the other unique contributions of Anne Rand to philosophy? Obviously, she was um, influenced by Aristotle, but she a lot, but she built a lot on her own and said some things that no one else had argued before.
2: I mean, I think she is the most unique philosophical thinker you know, since Aristotle. Mm-hmm. So I think she's a bold assertion. It's a very bold assertion. And I'm not, granted, I'm not a philosopher, I'm yeah. not an expert in philosophy, so take it with whatever grain of salt you want, but everything I've studied in, in philosophy, she is unique, she's innovative, she she completely, and this is why they hate her, I think, in the philosophy departments, because she completely turns the field upside down. Mm-hmm. And, and, and she does it in English, right, not in this dense philosophical, BS kind of uh, language that they use. So, um, you know, I think in epistemology, she is a massive innovator in epistemology. If you read a a small book, this is just an introduction introduction to objectivist epistemology, where she has a whole theory of concepts. It's completely original, it's completely new. From everything I can tell, it's true. When I watched my kids, form their first concepts like chair, like food, or, or or strawberry, or whatever. You could see them go through the process mm-hmm. she's describing. So I think my guess is if you took child psychologists and they read her epistemology, they would say yes, that matches their experience wow. of how children form concepts. Because it matches up. I mean, she's describing the uniquely human process of creating, of coming up with concepts. So she has this concept formation which, which is probably probably the most important thing to understand how we form concepts is a building block for everything else, right? This idea of objective Mm. and what objective means, right, is unique, new, hugely important uh, in in epistemology and what it means to be objective about things. It's not, it's not being outside of oneself or what Adam Smith called it an external observer mm. looking at, no it's you knowing your values it's not being behind a a, a veil of ignorance Rawls's veil of ignorance mm-hmm. kind of the dumbest thing i've ever heard of philosophically you know going going outside yourself with no identity and no nature no this is given your nature given your identity what is a value to you what is objective what you know so it's 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 identifying the fact that reason is our means of knowing the world um, so, her, her theory of concept, her defense of reason based on that theory of concept, her idea of objectivity, all in epistemology or innovations, and a moral theory is a complete revolution. It's, 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 in a sense, similar to Aristotle, but it's much deeper than Aristotle. Now, remember, she has 2,000 years of history to learn from, yeah. so it, this is not a slam on Aristotle. Yeah. Aristotle didn't have the benefit yeah. of Aristotle. He, well, <laughs> he didn't have the benefit of Aristotle, or the 2,000... Or yeah, yeah. Or, learning yeah, yeah. the history of yeah. 2000 years or of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, one of the points I man makes is she could have never come up with her ethics mm-hmm. without having lived and experienced the Industrial Revolution. Right. That is, the knowledge of what the human mind is capable yeah. of, the knowledge of what business and production are capable of, shaped her view of ethics. Mm. So a whole system of ethics bridging the is-ought gap that Hume said could never be bridged, mm. right, the idea that you can derive an art from an is, that she bridges and then develops an entire ethical system that, again, is, is, is beautifully integrated and, and solidly, uh, lives on solid foundation, is a completely new innovation. Yeah. And then when you go to capitalism, I mean, she's a massive innovator. I, you know, libertarians, one of the sad things about libertarianism is they, they've stolen or taken so much from Ayn Rand without giving a credit. Murray Rothbard was the worst when it came to this. Okay. A lot of the stuff he takes, including the non-aggression principle is right out of Ayn Rand without any of the credit and without explaining her philosophical foundation for why aggression is evil and why aggression is bad. So she actually develops an entire moral system and then builds on it, from it, not on it, from it, a defense of of the concept of individual rights. So she takes Locke's idea of individual rights and now rests it on a proper moral foundation and then defines what kind of government that leads to and says, that it has to lead to a government that you cannot have, for example, anarchy. That it must lead to government because you have to have a monopoly over the use of retaliatory force. That is not, cannot be, uh, epistemologically, morally, or, or in reality, can, can cannot be something you compete over. So she develops a whole view of capitalism, which for her time is completely unique, mm-hmm. completely new. And I think shapes the entire kind of free market movement mm-hmm. from that point onwards. And of course, she's reading Mises, mm-hmm. so it's not that she invented everything. But yeah, yeah. suddenly, when it comes to politics and her understanding of economics, she she we've got her copy of Human Action with with marginalia notes. She read uh, she read The Road to Serfdom with marginalia mm-hmm. notes, not not very friendly ones. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, on, so she read a lot. So she she benefited from other thinkers in the free market Mm -hmm. kind of movement at the time. She was friendly with Mises and Hazlitt, but she develops the philosophical foundation to sit on. And, you know, I've said this in other events. I think one of the greatest, maybe, certainly intellectually, the greatest tragedy of the 20th century is that... The, the great thinkers in, in the liberty movement, the great free market economists, the great free market thinkers, didn't take her as seriously mm-hmm. as she took them. They didn't take philosophy seriously. They, you know, so, so Mises comes up with praxology to yeah. explain everything, but praxology can't explain everything. It's not philosophy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a pseudo-philosophy. If Mises had taken Rand as seriously, philosophy as seriously as Rand took Mises in economics, we would be 50 to 100 years further ahead in our fight for liberty and and in a, a, a capitalist in a capitalist free world, and the fact that they rejected her and they rejected her ideas, they rejected her philosophy, didn't take it seriously, they didn't engage with it, mm-hmm. right? They just said, "Ah, right, we like that let's shrug, but we don't, you know, the ideas, mm-hmm. we don't want it." That I think has Ooh. retarded the liberty movement uh, for generations. Okay. One of the things I really love
1: about seeing videos with Rand is she'll be asked a question, a critique of capitalism or something like that. And I'll have in my head what I would come back with." And she always has a stro- an extraordinary answer I never would have thought of. She really does come from things from a different angle from everyone else. Completely. I, almost it.
2: always a philosophical angle, a yeah. moral angle, rather than just an economic and, angle.
1: And yeah, and she has that ability of saying, right, let's start at the beginning. First, we need to do this sequentially. There- What you're saying presupposes this, 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 right? Let's show why that's wrong. And you must lead to this ultimate conclusion. And uh, uh, some people who listen know that I'm an economics writer and that's kind of what what I try and do. Sure. Really go back to the beginning and and lay it out in a sequence of logic that people can understand. And of everyone I've read, I think she's one of the the greatest at doing that. So when we had uh, Dr. David Kelly from the Atlas Society on one time, you asked the question, uh, Alan Greenspan, what went wrong?
2: <laughs> I mean, who knows? That's, that's a good question for psychologists, psychologist, not for a philosopher, sure. I think, or for a, <laughs> uh, an economist like me. Uh, it's, it's more for a psychologist. Um, I, my suspicion, and from talking to people who knew Alan Greenspan a long time ago, um, is that he never completely got it. Mm. That when Ayn Rand was alive, she was such a genius. So Alan Greenspan super smart, and he's, super, he's a super empiricist. He 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 can you know he can collect data and he can he's not a theorist he's an empiricist, and he, he identified a genius he identified Ayn Rand as a genius he identified Ayn Rand as somebody he could look up to right, and then he would come to her with stuff and she would always correct him she would always say oh no you have to think about it this way because she was the she she could see both the data and the theory where he could see only the data, and as long as she was alive she kept slapping him into place in a sense she kept fixing him, she kept correcting his errors. And if you, even the essays that he wrote for her journal were heavily edited by her because they needed that editing because he couldn't write philosophically, mm-hmm. really, even when he, when he wrote economics. Um, so once she died, I think that went away. And once she died, that kind of said guiding light that could integrate and could, you yeah. know, fix the, 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 the challenges that he faced because he wasn't that good of a thinker. Um, that went away, and, and he deteriorated very fast. I mean, if you mm-hmm. think about... By 1984, he headed uh, Ronald Reagan's commission to fix Social Security, and his recommendation was not even to privatize it, which is a compromise enough, right? Uh, The only solution is to do away with it, but he didn't even suggest that. What he suggested is raise taxes, raise Social Security taxes, and reduce payments, right? So just conventional, standard, status thinking. And of course, he was setting himself up for the Fed job, which he Mm -hmm. got, and then as soon as he got the Fed job, he became a Keynesian, I mean, Mm -hmm. he became, and again, I think he was. If you think about it, he never. He was never an Austrian theoretical thinker about economics. He was a data guy. He was a consultant. He never got a PhD in economics. Mm. He was a consultant who liked to look at massive amounts of data and come up with conclusions. Well, so you start manipulating money based mm. on the data, based on what they, the, the, the the economists that the Federal Reserve tell you the data says, and it's it becomes it becomes a disaster, and you could argue that for a long time there he was probably following some pseudo, uh, I don't know, gold standard, or, or maybe he was following a Taylor model or something, yeah. but then at some point he even gave up that up, and he, he, he was so full of himself and his ability to, to project the economy and to use data that he started just winging it, and we got the 2008 financial crisis as a consequence. Indeed. Have you got more?
0: I don't have more if you want to wind it maybe up some
1: Maybe uh, something from uh, audience member Ryan Wood, the mean policeman. Okay. He's been on our show before. He's an ardent objectivist. Um, he says he wants to know a little bit about what you recommend in terms of art, movie and TV shows. <laughs> but also, what makes good art good, in your opinion, and what do you think its social importance is? Well, first,
2: I, everybody should should watch my YouTube channel, right. uh, the Iran Book Show, because I talk a lot about Movies and I, I, just did a critique of of the Joker and and, okay. uh, and the TV show The Witcher and which a uh, joke I really hated Witcher, was so so uh, okay. and uh, um, and I'm I'm trying to think of a movie I really liked a recent movie that I've liked. What was your like, main objection to the Joker or what was? Wow, I mean the Joker is is quite a philosophical movie. It's it's a deep movie. It's not a shallow movie. And and I, I think. I think in the last show, I identified the theme of the, the theme of the Joker, the theme of the movie is, that when that that uh, when um, when those that you depend on, right, and depend is is really important. You, you really depend on them, and it views human beings as very dependent.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, when those that you depend on uh, betray you or, or don't live up to your expectation, then violence is the only outcome. So. When the government doesn't supply you with the pills, when your mother doesn't protect you from abuse, then it's okay to go shoot whoever in the street and, and whoever upsets you. Yep. And when, but then if you look at society, what's going on in the background, when the government is not picking up the trash, When the government is not providing you with jobs, when the government is not creating an environment that is supposedly suitable, but it's all, you're expecting somebody else to take care of you. When that somebody else who's supposed to take care of you is not taking care of you, then it's okay to go rampaging through the streets, burn stuff down and shoot people. And when the rich don't behave, and when the rich are are being a little, you know, snotty towards you, like the character of uh, Batman's father, and when the rich are uh, aloof and are not taking care of you again, are not supplying you with what you're supposed to, kind of the, the empathy that they're supposed to provide you, or the jobs that they're supposed to provide you, whatever they're supposed to do for you, yeah. then it's okay to murder them. Because and, there's no there's no moral condemnation of the murder of, of, uh, of Thomas Wayne. There's no moral condemnation in the movie of the burning of the streets and the mayhem that's going on. There's no moral condemnation of him shooting the, the guy in the television station, who, by the way, betrays him, right? Because he, he makes fun of him. So it's okay to shoot him. So the only the only appropriate response to not being provided mm-hmm. with... Now, granted, he, he is mentally ill because his mother did horrible things to him. So, so you could somehow justify him through his mental illness. And if it was just his story, it would be different. But you've got society mm. in parallel. That's why... It's it's the same thing. The same thing driving him is driving society. Right. Just with society, it's the government and yeah. the rich and the people who take So he's a microcosm, basically. So that's why he becomes. That's why he becomes this symbol. That's why he becomes, you know, the the hero. And the movie is not condemning them. It's not condemning him. It's not condemning anybody. It just says, if if you don't take care of people, the violence is what you should
1: expect. This reminds me of like Jürgen Jer- Habermas from the the Frankfurt School saying, um, well, unless people have the basics of their survival needed, there's, you can't even expect us to reason or make an argument, yeah, don't because, blame them, yeah. don't blame them for what they do, and, and
2: I wouldn't be surprised, if, you know, in a sense, postmodernism is very influential, and, and, and this is a quite a, a, I think, a thoughtful movie, it's not just so a random they'd, movie, they'd it's, it's a work of art. Them. Now the director has a different theme, but I always tell people, it doesn't matter what the artist meant the movie to say. It's what it. It's what the movie actually says. Mm-hmm. Artists, artists often make stuff that's completely different than their intention because what is guiding a good work of art, what is guiding any work of art, right. is the subconscious of the artist.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's the what what Ayn Rand called the metaphysical value mm-hmm. judgments of the artist, which are often not held explicitly but held implicitly. It's the psychology so guiding. Much it's the of internal values that are guiding. Yeah. That's why you can learn. Maybe even as a therapist you can learn from, from kind yeah. of the drawings children make because it reveals something about their core, something about what's happening inside of them right. that is revealed. Yeah,
1: to. I I always remember that show Trapdoor. I don't know if you saw it, it was a claymation cartoon that was on when we were kids yeah. where Berk has well, uh, to guard the trapdoor, yeah. but he's shouted at by the master upstairs, and there's a little skeleton that all says, "Don't do that." So you have the id, the ego, and the super ego, yeah. and the trapdoor represents the unconscious.
2: Yeah, amazing. It's <laughs> so it's so so. I do a lot of art stuff on the show. Um, you know, not every show, but I try to include quite a bit of it. So the question is, what makes great art? Uh, you know what makes great art is 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 a you know is having a strong powerful theme and then integrating every aspect of the artwork to that theme. Right. It's a art is a recreation of reality based on an artist's metaphysical value judgments based based on his fundamental beliefs about the world, fundamental ideas about the world that he often holds unconsciously, not even consciously, and to the extent that every aspect integrates into that theme. To that extent, it's a good movie. So, is a good movie. Hmm. It's got an evil theme. It's got evil ideas. But it's a great movie. I mean, uh, if you think about Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky's books are amazing literature. Hmm. They are evil in their theme, right? they the anti-reason. They're anti-individualism. They're anti-individualistic morality. The whole point is, is, and they're pro-religion in the end. But they are so beautifully integrated towards that evil theme that the great works of art um, so you don't I don't judge movies based on their politics I don't judge movies based on uh, it terms of good or bad based on their theme I, I, I do another judge so there are two judgments you make about art one is a good and for that by the way I think you have to be an expert I think 999 percent of people have no clue mm. what good art what bad art is and shouldn't because it's not their area of expertise you can study it it's so like painting what makes a good painting well, Painting's like a, it's, it's conveying ideas through color and through shapes, and wow, you really have to think about how, how is this artist using color, shapes, what is the idea, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done to figure yeah. out if a good painting is a good painting, or if, or if it's a bad painting. Experts, you know, that's why we need experts, right, to teach us how to do that. So uh, I think the one evaluation is a good or bad, it's very difficult to make and most people can't. The other question is, did I enjoy it or not?
0: Yeah.
2: And then why did I enjoy it? And that's a different evaluation. So I enjoy movies that I think are eh mediocre. I hate movies that I think are really good, mm-hmm. like Joker. I didn't like Joker. I didn't enjoy Joker. There was nothing about Joker to enjoy. But it was a I have to say I think to the extent that I'm semi expert, I think it was a good movie. Yeah. But I didn't enjoy it. Okay. Right? So y- you can have these different valuations, right? Based on the theme, based on the 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 enjoyment value of 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 a yeah. particular of a particular movie. So I have opinions about a lot, I watch a lot of movies, a lot of, I, well, I watch a lot of old movies, but I watch a mm. lot of TV shows. I have opinions about almost all of them. Mm. Um, and I, I, I love sculpture, I love painting, I love classical music. Mm. I like, I like not love popular music. So, mm. you know, I have a mm. wide array. I think a life without art is a poor life. Mm. It's, yeah. it's a life not lived. You should surround yourself with beauty. Again, Politics. We're not gonna make any difference, but you can make a difference every single day in your life. Mm. You, can, you can be a happier or less happy person every single day. You you control your environment. You control how beautiful you make your home. You control the kind of career you pursue. You control what values you go after. You control the kind of women you sleep with. You control, to some extent, the women also control it. But you, you know, you control the things that are important to you in your life. That is, a, that is where you should focus your life. What happens in London, or pure in Scotland, or in Washington, D.C., has an impact on you, but relative to decisions you make about your own life every single day, it's minute. So focus on that, focus on how to make your life the best life that it can be.
1: Right. And for more on the philosophy of how to live on planet Earth, make sure to tune in to the Yaron Brooks Show. And more
2: importantly, read Ayn Rand, read Ayn Rand, study Ayn Rand, and you should should read her fiction and her non-fiction. There's so much there. A big shout out before we go to Morgan Carter from the Young
0: Conservatives for setting this whole thing up. Thanks to you. uh, Great job. And thank you very much, Dr. Brooke, for coming and talking to us. It's been absolutely enlightening. Thank you. Thank you.